0: Hello oh, and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. And this week we have a very special guest, uh, Ramaz Dagher. You may know him from his political blog, Mulhazat. He is also an MD and a resident in psychiatry. Ramaz, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you guys for having me. I'm really glad to be with you today. I wanted to also say that I'm a big fan of the podcast too. So
0: well, I I I think that you know the admiration is mutual for your blog. We we do sort of the same kinds of things or, or do things in the same space. Uh, it was probably inevitable that you would be on the uh, our podcast at some point. Yes. So we're super we're super jazzed to have you, especially because this week we're going to be talking about some important things and important things that you probably know quite a bit about. I, I mean the blast that happened on August 4th is still just the center of Lebanese politics and what is going on in the country. There are other stories, other important stories, and we're going to go over a couple of them in this episode. But the the huge elephant in the room is still the Beirut blast. And, and, And everything that happens in Lebanon sort of revolves around that right now, no matter what it is. Ramaz, I feel like a a lot of people may not, especially those overseas, may not have a great understanding of really what happened on that day. But you you were actually at the hospital, right?
1: Yes, I was on the floor uh, at the hospital. And uh, when the explosion happened, we didn't really know what was happening at first. We thought it was an earthquake because it lasted for multiple seconds. And then something, I mean, glass started chattering everywhere. The faux plafond, the roof started uh, going down and in our room specifically and then we just simply went out of the building to see what was happening and uh, when we went out we saw this big uh, colorful uh, smoke uh, right over the building in the sky and we thought that it was maybe a a chemical explosion, something of the sort of the Hmm. sort, we didn't really understand uh, What was happening and then we went to the ER because I mean injured people started coming in and I'm pretty confident that I'm never going to see something like that again in my life I mean within an hour probably and for the rest of the night we had hundreds and this is not uh, an exaggeration we had hundreds of, of injured people coming in and not your regular day trauma or injury I mean things that I couldn't describe, even if I wanted to, Uh, so much death. We were basically drowning in blood. Something really beautiful happened. It's that the entire uh, hospital went to the ER to help out, be it residents, interns, med students, uh, nurses. uh, Everyone was there. there. But it still wasn't enough in the sense that there were so much injuries that day. You feel that no matter what you do you'd feel we'd still feel powerless I mean we opened uh, lots of uh, rooms in the OR to try to cope with all the injuries and I mean I'm gonna say something here school prepares you for a lot of things but this was something else something else entirely and I don't think people will uh, will get over this anytime soon because I mean It's an event that scars you, be it on the physical part, I mean, the injuries, or on the psychological part, because what happened should not be forgotten. A lot of things that happened that shouldn't have happened that day, because things like that shouldn't happen. And the healthcare system shouldn't have to face so much tragedy in so little time. The hospital where I worked in got relatively spared. We had a lot of of destruction. A lot of destruction. So the word relative is a big word. But uh, other hospitals that were more more uh, close to the blast had even more destruction. And it was really a, a horrible day because, I mean, you'd see those patients in the hundreds coming into the ER within hours. No hospital can, can cope. It's impossible. And at the same time, you see the ER that is also partially destruct, destroyed. So Makes you wonder, I mean, what have the people done to get there? So yeah, a lot of that tragedy. People who were injured in the, in the blast, lots of them are still in the ICUs. And every day we hear about someone who sadly passes away because of that tragic uh, event and the tragic day. And I don't think it's going to be forgotten anytime soon. That's
0: a really important uh, thing to keep in mind that, you know, the death toll, it's not set. We don't know what the 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 final death toll will end up being from this, but certainly more than it is right now. Which, which I, I believe the latest official number was
1: uh, was it 191, more or less. But you know, there's uh, there's someone who's sadly passing away every every day or every other day. So uh, we're not going to have a definitive number until I think it's it will be a couple of weeks.
2: And you also have uh, about 52 people who are reportedly still missing, right? Yes, yes. Uh, This is another
1: tragedy in itself for a mother to wait in uncertainty and not have any confirmation on the whereabouts of of her children.
2: Yeah, it's been almost 20 days since the explosion, uh, 19 days because we're recording on Sunday. And right now, as we speak, as we're recording this, the civil defense team are still looking for uh, the bodies of missing individuals in the port area, as, uh, as a friend of mine who is reporting from there just told me. So it's a tragic thing to be witnessing.
0: And that, and all of this, of course, leads to just a strained healthcare system. You know, the the Syndicate of Doctors came out, I think, a week ago and said, you know, some two thousand doctors have been affected. Um, and and obviously, you know, we've heard all the reporting about um, certain hospitals needing to shut down or you know, hospitals being damaged and everything like that. I mean, this is just it's enormous strain on. Our healthcare professionals who are already kind of stretched thin and didn't weren't
1: equipped right and weren't paid right. We were already low on certain medical supplies, and now with uh, sudden stress on the healthcare system and the enormous justified use of those medical supplies, uh, we're probably even lower on supplies. As you guys probably know, the medical supplies are mainly imported from from outside of Lebanon.
0: And we well, just got news this week as well that BDL, the central bank, reportedly will stop subsidizing uh, imports of wheat, fuel, and medicine probably in about three months. And so that's where that financial, the financial collapse that we've been witnessing over the past year, is really going to, you know, come to bear on sectors like the health sector, you know, that are already overstretched, that are already that are that are also very vital to the country. But speaking of the health sector, it's coming under attack on numerous different angles. Uh, Rames, you just talked about the blast, and and we're talking about BDL not being able to support imports to the country in medicine and uh, other medical supplies. But also, we are seeing an enormous spike in coronavirus cases. This past week, was way more than anything that we've ever seen before. There were 3,749 cases this past week, just in the past week, right? The week before that was 2,200. So it went from 2,200 to 3,700. And and that is, you know, that 2,200 number from from the week before, that is- much higher than the week before that, which is much higher than the week before that. You can go all the way down. This is definitely exponential growth that we're seeing here right now. Uh, and it's getting to the level where the numbers are starting to be actually kind of big, you know, enough to be worried about uh, for sure. Uh, another way to think about the growth is, you know, we're seeing about 600 new cases per day. That That's what it's been for the past four days or so uh, up through Saturday, the latest numbers that we have. But if you think about 600 new cases per day, That's like going back to June and taking the total number of active cases in the entire country and just adding that every day. Back in, you know, from April through the beginning of July, the number of active cases in the country was around 500, 600, something like that. And now we're adding that many
1: on a daily basis. There is no doubt that things are accelerating right now. When it comes to the pandemic, and especially that the healthcare system is already strained because of the economic crisis, this uh, that we were overwhelmed as a healthcare sector by the blast. So we're already running low on everything. We have several hospitals that were partially destroyed, two or three hospitals that were severely uh, damaged, and then and that means that we have less beds to accept to admit patients. And now this rise in the coronavirus cases only means that there are there is even more stress on the system. We're going to soon come to a time where we don't have enough beds and it's going to be a scenario like the one that happened outside of Lebanon and the one we, we've been trying to avoid uh, for the past eight or nine months. Yeah, and we had twenty-four people
0: die just in the past week as well from coronavirus, uh, and this puts Lebanon's death toll for the virus at one hundred twenty-one. You know, the numbers are starting to go up significantly, not just in number of people who catch it, and number of cases detected, but in the number of deaths. Actually, we're we're starting to see this hit home.
2: Yeah, and apart from uh, the the explosion and the health issues. What we heard most about in the last week was uh, the special tribunal for Lebanon's verdict. So finally, the international court that was set up to investigate the the assassination of uh, late Prime Minister Rafael Hariri and other assassinations that are connected to it uh, has made its uh, almost final verdict. It's still subject to appeal. But it's the final verdict based on the evidence uh, put forward by the prosecution team and the response of the defense team, etc. They made it clear from the beginning that they have no evidence beyond reasonable doubt that the leadership of Hezbollah or the Syrian regime, which are the two political actors that have been accused of this assassination most most consistently. And the verdict said that uh, there is no uh, evidence that the leadership of Hezbollah is involved. However, the only person who was indicted uh, in the verdict is a Hezbollah supporter. Some are saying he's a Hezbollah member. Some are saying Hezbollah supporter. In court, they decided to use the word supporter, I think, because uh, it makes it less indicting of Hezbollah itself as a political organization. Anyway, there were four people who have been on, uh, they have been charged uh, in this court since 2011. I will just say their family names, Sabra, Mera'i, Badr al uh, and Ayash, Only Ayash has been indicted and Badr al-Din, the, the case against him was dropped because uh, Badr din is the Hezbollah leader who died in Syria in 2016. So the case against him was dropped when he died. And then the other two, there was no sufficient evidence that uh, they were directly involved in conspiring to kill Hariri. So, um, yeah, it was quite a turn-off for some people who kind of were expecting a much bigger verdict in terms of its political significance. And actually, the, or although most of the propaganda against the court was coming from the Hezbollah and, and allies' side, uh, after the court, uh, you know, <laughs> issued its verdict, it was these same people who were celebrating it, more or less, because it did not uh, uh, directly... Uh, you know, involve Hezbollah or the Syrian regime as because the the judge stated clearly that they had no evidence that the Hezbollah leadership was involved.
0: For my part, it it seems as though, you know, this STL verdict, yeah, it was was big news because it it happened, right? But it seems like a very much a small blip on the radar compared to what people sort of had expected or what a, a normal person would expect, you know? I mean, we knew that, this just didn't have the same currency that the question had back in the, uh, obviously in the immediate aftermath of uh, Hariri's assassination, that whole event, February 14th, 2005, when he was killed, you know, it, it really set up these two sides that we've been talking about ever since the March 8th and March 14th movements. But, but because of the financial collapse that whole divide yes, it's still very relevant politically it still exists politically certainly on the March 8th side for sure but Lebanese people ordinary Lebanese people I I think cared a little bit less about it because it's all the politicians who are the problem uh, according to a, a large number uh, of people and so it's it's no longer you know the the parts the partisanship uh, between March 8th and March 14th, uh, I, I think has been dulled down quite, quite a bit, e- even though individual party partisanship may have remained uh, constant. And so that means that nobody cares quite as much about the STL verdict because it's no longer, it, it's important for justice, it's important for rule of law, these kinds of things, but it's no longer as politically relevant as it would have been, say,
2: five years ago what makes me what makes me a bit frustrated with this whole issue is that no one seems to care about the truth you know like we we, we they turn truth into like a joke into into like the 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 idea of knowing what happened um, has become so irrelevant to how people are polarized uh, there's you know a bunch of people who don't care about this the stl and uh, don't care about you know finding out who killed hariri a bunch of people who uh, know and believe that you know a certain side killed him, and aren't willing to to give and take in that, on that that end. And then you have the the base of Hezbollah, who is basically has been doing all sorts of nasty propaganda against the STL, most of the times unfairly, trying to you know to uh, depict it as a total joke, so that it under undermines whatever uh, findings uh, the court comes up with. And what we're left with is like kind of like a political class that not only kind of prevents us from changing things, it also doesn't want us to know what happened in the past so that you know we as a population can can you know write our history in a clear way. you see? This is an issue. This is an issue that frustrates me with all these major events uh, and the, the 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 cases that are discarded and the truths that we never find out. It's that you know we can't write history because they're they're intentionally sabotaging the process of writing a clear history that would allow us to learn from these lessons and have a clear perspective on on the destiny of this uh, of this country.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think with that we need to turn to turn back to the blast and and examine just what's going on in this new world, this new post-blast Lebanon. There's obviously. Okay. So first off, there are a lot of things that the politicians need to get done, right? There is blast relief. There is reconstruction. There is the economic and financial crisis that we've been going through for the past year that is only getting worse and about to get a whole lot worse, as we as we just mentioned earlier, given the reports about BDL. Uh, the government also needs to deal with the coronavirus, of course. And so all of these things are going on, how are the politicians actually going to do any of these things? Well, I mean, one of the things that needs to happen as well in order for them to do anything is just form a government, which, by the way, between two weeks ago and now, the government fell. Uh, <laughs> it was the Monday, I think, after we released uh, the episode with Taymor Ashari about the blast, Hassan Diab you know, announced that the government was resigning and resigned. And I mean, that was just... Pretty quick.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what's the last happened on August four? After August four, the there's a blame game that started between the government and parliament. So, at first, it was a low-key blame game that got even bigger and bigger, uh, especially when during the weekend, uh, I mean, the weekend just after the blast, uh, Hassan Jab starts hinting that uh, he wanted to dissolve the parliament and kind of blaming the parliament for all that tragedy. Uh, what happened is that the parliament didn't take it quite well. And when I say parliament, I say the political uh, and the political leaders that are in parliament too. Because, you know, Hassan Jab has a government that is mainly a March 8th government that they've been trying to uh, picture as a technocrat and independent government, which is not really the case. But that's not... Yeah, (laughs) all
0: all the evidence is to the contrary, right? (laughs) So
1: you have this government that is made of uh, ministers that are loyal to the political parties in power. And then you have the prime minister, Hassan Jab, who decides that the way out of this is to blame the parliament. So what he does is that he hints of uh, dissolving the parliament and he starts blaming the parliament for everything that's been happening. And so the political leaders don't take it that well. And since they kind of control his government via their ministers, we all know that if a third of the ministers resign, the government kind of collapses. So uh, what happened is that a low-key political war started between the government and the parliament. And uh, Hassan Jab was kind of alone because he can't dissolve the parliament without the president agreeing to it. And the president doesn't want to sole parliament where he has a big chunk of, of influence. So no one was willing to blame the parliament and blame the political leaders. I mean, I can't see why the political leaders would shoot themselves in the foot. So uh, what happened is that uh, everyone kind of abandoned Hassan Jab. Everyone started resigning for the government and uh, Hassan Jab, just to make things worse for him, uh, had to... Uh, Appear before parliament on Thursday, so that's eight days after the blast, to explain to the parliament how his government didn't handle the situation well. Basically, it was a no confidence vote. It was very clear that the political parties didn't want him after he started hinting that he wanted to dissolve the parliament. So, what happened in the end is that Hassan Jab resigned on Monday. Uh, three days before uh, the parliament session, because it was quite clear that he couldn't dissolve the parliament, that he didn't have the the means to do so, and that uh, the parliament was going to blame him and his government instead. And now that he had almost five or six ministers uh, resigning, because they started resigning uh, in the weekend, and they kept resigning uh, on Monday. So on Monday, that's probably the 10th of August, uh, the government eventually resigned uh, as whole. Hassan Jab resigned and uh, avoided uh, a big clash with the parliament on Thursday, and avoided uh, getting the blame so publicly. You know, it's because... it's just
0: so amazing though that that all of this happened because you would think, okay, well the government resigned, but parliament should still hold that oversight hearing, right? We need to get to the fucking bottom of this. Uh, But no, (laughs) Parliament still met on Thursday at UNESCO Palace, but they just came in and reaffirmed the state of emergency. That's it. They didn't have an oversight hearing uh, that I heard of, at least. Exactly.
1: So we've been promised justice. Here we are 20 days later with absolutely no clue about what happened. The only investigations we're... uh, we're knowing about are the investigations of the investigative journalists who have been trying to, uh, to clear a little bit what happened with the blast and why was there 2,750 tons of uh, explosives stored in the port and how they got there. And there are a lot of reasons. Uh, there are a lot of uh, unclear things that need, be, need to be clarified. Absolutely. I mean, and
0: all of this comes back to, okay, so right now there are a number of things that the politicians have to do because of what we just said, you know, there's, there is no government anymore. So they need to have a new government. Well, have they moved at all towards doing that? No. President Michelle Aoun seems to be putting off any sort of. Parliamentary consultations, which are constitutionally required of him to do. He claims that the constitution does not require him to do those immediately and he can choose whenever. But you know, I, I think it's been 13 days or something like that as of today, and there's just nothing. They need to do this, but they're not moving on this. Uh, if they don't have a government, are they going to be able to deal with any of these other problems that you know, and first and foremost, among these is investigating and figuring out who exactly is responsible. If there aren't any ministers that Parliament's going to hold accountable and do an oversight hearing for, is the investigation going to be
1: solely done by the military authority? Yes, exactly. There's something really important. You also said earlier that uh, we have a state of, of emergency now in Beirut. We haven't had that for years, for decades. So. I mean, uh, the army is uh, handling things in Beirut right now. And there's a sense of vacancy in place because, you know, usually even the governments couldn't uh, handle much less things than that. And now you have uh, a caretaker government that has to deal with uh, an investigation, with providing justice, with rebuilding at least half the capital with uh, solving uh, an economic crisis that's been going on for years, with finding a solution to the financial crisis, and with dealing with uh, with a pandemic. So uh, lots of exactly. things uh, are at stake right now. And uh, a caretaker government cannot do that. We need the government as soon as possible, yet... Lebanese politicians and the Zouamas and the ruling parties have been doing for the past two weeks what they always do when there's a resignation of the government, which is procrastinating and simply going into a blame game. I mean, for the past week, we've been hearing speeches from all the ruling uh, parties just simply throwing the blame at each other without giving us concrete solutions to imminent things that have. Huge implications on the population. People have lost their homes. They have lost loved ones. They are uh, p- poverty rates have never been higher. Uh, people have never felt so much tragic events. Right, it, it's, it's, the,
0: it's the same old game. But it seems to me as though right now, the Lebanese elite is just sort of at a loss as to how to move forward right now. There are just so many challenges that are before them. It's it's like nothing ever before. And then plus, they have this very hot, huge issue of, well, who is responsible for the explosion at the port? And it's quite possible that that goes, you know, all the way to the top. It's quite possible that, that involves multiple parties, multiple sides. And it, it seems to me that, they just, the, the elite just really don't know what to do in this sort of situation. What they have done so far is they've opened the investigation, right? Uh, but even in that, we see just insane politicking. Uh, Taymor uh, Asheri had a great story in Al Jazeera English this week uh, about the, uh, the person who is leading the investigation now, Farisa uh, Sawan, uh, he is the military investigative judge has been there. I, I think he was a part of the, was it the 2016 appointments? I'd have to look it up, but uh, you know, he's this high ranking member of the judiciary. Uh, but taymor's report is, it is very, very good at laying out just how he and other top officials in the judiciary have certain political biases. Right. And also he was, you know, the, the third person picked by the justice minister to lead this the first two were not viable for whatever reason possibly politically and so they settled on this guy who has certain known proclivities let's say and so we we see the the political machine is already you know it's it's already affecting the investigation for sure
2: yeah i mean from uh, the information that we all know uh, the first judge to be suggested by the the justice minister um, was actually recommended by a lot of independent uh, lawyers and judges they know him they trust him and what what they say what they argue is that actually his he was rejected his nomination was rejected specifically be- because he is independent from political forces Whereas when it comes to Sa'wan, we have a different history. As as uh, Taymor, uh, lays out in his piece, uh, Sa'wan's record includes many instances where he showed bias towards political fo- to, towards political forces or towards uh, security forces. Uh, for instance, in one of the most important cases, the case of uh, Ala Abu Fakhir, one of the martyrs of the October 17 uprising, who was killed uh, by the bodyguard of a of a colonel driving through a roadblock. Anyway, so Alaa Abu Fakhir died on that moment when the bodyguard shot him and many people allegedly heard the colonel saying, telling the bodyguard to shoot Alaa Abu Fakhir, but uh, uh, regardless, uh, Fadi Sawan, the judge that we're talking about, ordered his release and then uh, his decision was revoked. He was put in jail again and then Sawan again ordered his release last April which some people say showed a bias towards, you know, the colonel himself at the expense of the victim. And another case is the case of uh, the Qabrishmun incident. We talk about this in an episode called uh, Blood and Politics, uh, a very major incident where two uh, people from Talal Erslan's uh, Lebanese Democratic Party was were killed in a confrontation between PSP and and Erslan's uh, people in Qabrishmun in the district of Ale. And in that case, a case where the FBI FPM had been very heavily involved politically uh, because the two people who died were uh, bodyguards of uh, Erslan's minister, who was uh, accompanying the the FPM uh, the FPM convoy in the area. So uh, although the FPM was kind of interested, had an interest in this case, uh, Fadis one reportedly succumbed to the pressure from the justice minister back then, Salim Jiraisati. Uh, to move the case to uh, to the hands of a judge who is close or appointed by or nominated by the FPM, so it's another example of how he can be not very, you know, um, independent from the political establishment, and why that would be uh, would raise eyebrows now when when the big question is about political accountability.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. My question then is, given all of the complexities going on and the search for, you know, the culprit, who is responsible, is it even possible to form a government in, in the coming weeks? Is that even remotely? Is there, is there some way that that can happen? And I'm speaking due to local considerations, not necessarily what Saudi wants or the U.S.
1: wants or Macron wants. Political solutions require political will the same way I mean accountability requires an independent uh, judiciary so when it comes to government formation I think Lebanese politicians are procrastinating right now and they are waiting for uh, uh, the orders to come from outside honestly that's my two cents Uh, they also have no clue on what to do next because uh, every one of the parties wants to uh, Play the blame game right now and blame the other uh, the other side for uh, the blast. And it's also a very important thing for Lebanese politicians right now to recreate that March 14, March 8 divide we've been seeing uh, recently. Uh, FPM and Lebanese Forces uh, politicians uh, having uh, fights on Twitter and uh, in their speeches because. Right now, there's this narrative that they are trying to fight. The narrative that they, most of those who were in power knew or uh, had a hand in what happened. And it kind of puts them uh, to blame for, uh, for the entire disaster. Uh, what they are trying to do is to fight that narrative with another narrative. A narrative where they start blaming each other like the good old days of... Uh, 2010 and 2009 and 2008, and they start to throw the blame at each other instead of just sharing it and turning uh, the entire population against all of them. So, uh, we've seen a lot of threats of civil war recently, be it from Lebanese politicians or on the media. So, uh, this is all part of a narrative that has one single purpose to instill fear in people and make them uh, feel that uh, the only safety, regardless of everything that happened, regardless of the destruction of Beirut, of uh, the economic crisis, of the pandemic, the only safety any Lebanese has is to be uh, a part of the system or loyal to a party that is in that system. I think this is the top priority right now for the Lebanese politicians, to uh, have the narrative uh, in place instead of actually fixing things and actually seeing how they have how they should reconstruct and rebuild Beirut and solve an economic crisis in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah,
0: it seems as though yeah everybody's sort of on the war path right now, which doesn't seem to be very conducive to negotiating a national unity government or any kind of government right. In, instead it seems as though right now all of the politicians have really sort of drawn back and they're trying to pass the blame for as many things as they can to other parties and then and and hope that especially with the investigations, Uh, and what comes out with what happened at the port, that the blame lands hopefully on the other side, and then you have much more power going into government formation talks. Until until we see something come out of the investigation and some sort of responsibility being laid, I don't see how we get a government. Exactly. And
1: there's something uh, interesting also to discuss. It's that for years, uh, the president was considered to be weaker than the other uh, officials in Lebanon, the top officials. So weaker than the prime minister, weaker than the speaker of the parliament. The prime minister was also was always seen as uh, the guy who uh, dealt with everything regarding the executive power and the the powers of the speaker are. Uh, well established but recently i mean since uh, the the october revolution we've started to notice that uh, the president actually found out about something about power that wasn't really used earlier and it's the fact that he can postpone parliamentary consultations so this is something well, that's,
0: that's that's definitely constitutionally debatable i yeah. you know i, I think that the Constitution reads, you know, talk to a lawyer, but I think that that is highly <laughs> yeah. questionable, his his interpretation of that, and it certainly goes
1: against past precedent. Yes, but regardless, uh, this is something the FPM and the president are starting to use right now. So what the president is trying to do is to control the outcome before the government formation is actually happening. Because... Years ago, when uh, other presidents used to form a government uh, and participate in the formation, the parliamentary consultations weren't postponed so much. So what the president is trying to do right now is to try to control whatever he can control of the of the outcome. Because if he pushes the parliamentary consultation sooner than, uh, than they realize what they should do, it could kind of corner them and make them take rash decisions that they don't want to take right now. It would force on them a solution that they might not agree on. And that goes for all the other parties. So uh, I think the president is just postponing a decision, but we don't have the luxury of postponing right right now. But, but we need the decision and we need it fast because uh, it's a race against time right now.
2: I think one of the main political questions that have to be answered today is who's going to be the next prime minister uh, and how will the political formation of the government be? Uh, obviously, this depends on a regional deal that hasn't been reached yet. And in my opinion, the regional and the global aspects the geopolitics are more important today than what the local actors want necessarily because they are so dependent on the outside and then the support from outside etc but anyway there's a one there's one question that the political establishment is stuck at which is uh, bringing back Hariri or not right this is one of the main issues because uh, there is interest in bringing back Hariri for many of the sides in the political establishment at the same time uh, they know for sure that it won't be accepted. It won't be supported uh, on a popular level. People who have been involved in protests, which is a significant percentage of the population, people who in general don't support Hariri, are too many uh, to kind of to to have a popular backing uh, for such a measure. Also, they are worried. I think we don't know what's happening. Internal cause. What seems to ha- to be happening is that the international community is not supporting. hariri-led government uh, as strongly as uh, we might expect it to support it um which can be for a variety of reasons but one of the main reasons i think is a matter of credibility and legitimacy um and uh, hariri on what basis is hariri now the ideal candidate for for uh, for prime minister after the uprising that we saw after this rejection of the political establishment but also after his personal failures in achieving anything for the country and him being kind of one of the symbols of the political establishment, um, so there's this one issue. There's another issue with who will be in the in the in the cabinet. But there's also the issue of, you know, after this cabinet, when will the elections happen? Who will be president after Michel Aoun? And they all, if we're talking about local politics only, all of these things and many many others related to, you know, all things that you can think about in terms of appointments, in terms of the investigation and in the in the and the port explosion. Any other factor can be brought in, right? But all of these have to factor in when we're talking about a political deal today. So, how they fix, how they deal with each of these obstacles is very interesting to see. And one of the most interesting ones, in my opinion, will be the prime minister position because you can't get someone. I I read something that was uh, nice, uh, written by Ziad Aitani, the the theater actor. He said that they brought Hassan Diab as prime minister to absorb the popular anger and then they uh, they made him resign to also to absorb uh this popular anger and he served a specific function for the political establishment so what is the function of the next prime minister for the political establishment this is the real question right do they want the real thing Do they want someone of the size of hariri who would potentially the next day fail in bringing in the aid that uh, that he needs and the cash flow and to enact a plan that actually rescues the economic and financial system or do they want another full guy and if they're going to get another full guy Till when, right? When are, till when are they going to keep sabotaging solutions and postponing and procrastinating the process of overcoming this crisis? So it's not an easy. I wouldn't. I don't envy the political establishment today. They're at a very difficult uh, point.
0: And uh, just to wrap up on that note, they don't have any real incentive or any real pressure coming from the street right now to get a move on on this. We are on lockdown, you know, under coronavirus. There there were protests following, immediately following the blast, but there aren't any more. People are, are home. And so it seems as though politicians feel like they can sort of take their time here.
2: Yeah, especially with the state of emergency that was passed uh, in a very weird way that is constitutionally and legally very questionable uh, how this whole thing happened. But now we have a state of emergency that has been extended um, by cabinet. Uh, So it was passed by cabinet and then approved by parliament, but not in the the duration that it should be. Uh, But Berry kind of claimed that it's longer than it's supposed to be. And then now the cabinet has extended it again anyway. This is also we should we should look at the state of emergency as a political act in itself because one of its main purposes it doesn't really help when it's when you're talking about you know relief or things like that it helps mostly in uh, in giving the army the mandate to oppress to stop. Protests in the streets to you know it's to spread this this environment this uh, this sentiment of fear among people that you know this is not your city anymore right now is it belongs to the army so don't think of going there and uh, and protesting or doing another uprising or whatever because it's such a difficult situation for the government and as we as we saw on on August eighth on Saturday uh, the big protest following the explosion the revolutionary energy is still there it's just that. It's, there's no momentum, but people are ready to take to the streets when something huge happens and, uh, you know, against the whole political establishment they are ready, a lot of people are ready to do so so they know that, the political establishment knows that and it knows it's a very difficult position so it needs the state of emergency and it needs all of this propaganda that we've been talking about and the narrative that Trump has been talking about trying to shift the blame and trying to make it look like a civil war era, etc. Um, they need all of that uh, to ensure that, you know, they are not being directly held accountable by the people in the streets.
1: And it's as if Uh, They really don't know what to do or they're not sure about their next steps and they need time and they are using this uh, state of emergency uh, to get the time they need while everyone else is in ruins, basically. So uh, they are buying time, but for how long? I mean, the entire country is suffering because of it. Absolutely. And on
0: that note, I think we've got to leave it there. Uh, Ramaz, thank you so much for joining us. I, I really appreciated it.
1: Thank you for having me, guys. It's uh, been great being with you today. It's great to have you. And we will
0: be back, inshallah, next week with another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Benjamin Rad. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Ramaz Dazir. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast.
2: podcast is brought to you by myself nizar hassan benjamin red produced behind the scenes by susan wilson and the music is by omar elfeel